Good morning. Welcome to With God at Dawn. Here is our weekly chapter, The Golden Chain, by Albert Olison. We're on chapter 10 now, titled Temptations. Just as a reminder, this book is broken up into three sections. The first, let me get there. Um, okay. The first eight chapters were Man's Predicament, the next five, Our Relationship to Jesus. And that's what we are on now, our relationship to Jesus. Uh, chapter 10, Temptation. All right. We have a garden where we try to grow the finest flowers and vegetables. We cultivate and water and pull out the weeds until it's a beautiful spot. But in a few days, there's a new crop of pests to hoe out and destroy. Why? Well, you say the soil is loaded with weed seed from former years and that we may expect a constant battle until the crop is harvested. It's the same with our hearts. We strive to control the failings of our natures, but again and again a new growth of perverse inclinations arise. Why? The mental soil is heavy with the inborn traits of many generations, and until the crop of character is harvested... We must continue constant spiritual cultivation. Should all of this discourage us? No, for it's the lot of all Christians in our yard. We have a try-again tree. <laughs> it's really a crimson maple, but it does not seem to be hardy enough for our severe climate. For several years it has almost died, but each spring it dries again. Although the winter was severe and long, we're delighted when we see the brilliant crimson leaves open even to the top of the tallest branch. We're happy to see the reward of perseverance. Well, the lesson is obvious, and it applies to every follower of Christ. Since we're not to be free from temptation in this life, how shall we overcome? We have an inspired definition of each of these terms. Well, first, what is temptation? How does it arise? Sin has degraded the faculties of the soul. Temptations from without find an answering cord within the heart and the feet turn imperceptibly toward evil. That can be found in Testimonies, Volume 8, page 312. This is a remarkable explanation of how man is enticed to sin. It requires two factors to produce temptation in fallen man, the inward desire of nature and the suggestion from without. Evil influences stimulate desire until we either yield or gain the victory over them. Since our fallen nature inclines toward sin, Evil angels mark our frailty, and they suggest the opportunities. We have also the formula for overcoming temptation. Temptation is resisted when a man is powerfully influenced to do a wrong action, and knowing that he can do it, resists by faith with a firm hold upon divine power. This was the ordeal through which Christ passed. That can be found in the Youth's Instructor, July 20. 1899. Overcoming is resisting with the help of God. Strength for overcoming is in direct ratio to the will to resist. Resist much and the power of withstanding grows stronger. Resist a little and the power diminishes. The perfect human character of Christ was formed by continual and absolute resistance to all evil. In our own strength it's impossible for us to deny the clamors of our fallen nature. Through this channel, that is through our fallen nature, Satan will bring temptations or suggestions upon us.
Christ knew that the enemy would come to every human being to take advantage of hereditary weakness and by his false insinuations to ensnare all whose trust is not in God. And by passing over the ground which man must travel, our Lord has prepared the way for us to overcome. That's found in the Desire of Ages, pages 122 and 123. Now, while temptation in itself is not sin, if one tolerates the suggestion of temptation without instantly resisting it in the mind, it becomes sin to him, even though not translated into action. Why? Because um, this is me speaking, not the book. Because we're, we're compromising our integrity. And whenever we do that, we weaken our own resolve and our own character. That's why if we, we have to instantly resist it. Okay, back to the book. We cannot meditate upon sin or its desirability without inviting the temptation to linger. A man cannot, without danger, hold poisoned candy in his mouth, even when he does not intend to swallow it. Mm. Two men took a book which contains a chapter with lewd suggestions. The first man comes to this chapter, and as soon as he notes the content, he closed the book. The second man comes to the same passage, and while he does not read it, word for word he glances through it hastily and accepts the pleasure of being tempted as far as he dares. This brings us to the age-old question. Where did Eve's sin begin? It was when she continued to listen to the voice of the serpent and did not turn away from him. God limits the power of temptation. There's a limit to the persecution the devil instigates. We're not to be tempted above that which we can bear. In the wilderness, when Satan tempted Christ with all the cunning he could bring to bear, the Savior's resistance was absolute, and the adversary was forced to leave him for a time. God has set a limit for temptation, and while the struggle may have to be faced again, if we resist and pray for help, we will be given time to recover. The Savior can help us in our trials, for he was one of us. He sympathizes with us and desires that we resist evil, as he did. Why should the Christian be so tempted? The crucible of trial refines the gold of character, and thus it is formed by hard, stern battles with self. Conflict after conflict must be waged against hereditary tendencies. That can be found in Christ's Object Lessons, page 331. The Christian fights unceasingly against the fallen nature and the enticements of the evil one. Christ overcame as a young man. Sorely as he was tried on the point of hasty and angry speech, he never once sinned with his lips. With patient calmness, he met the sneers, the taunts, and the ridicule of his fellow workers at the carpenter bench. Instead of retorting angrily, he would begin to sing one of David's beautiful psalms, and his companions, before realizing what they were doing, would unite with him in the hymn. Review and Herald, May 26, 1904. Although Adam was perfect in the day he was created, he had to form a character. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was part of that test. Here were two forces, two ideas to choose between. Here was the opportunity for decision by which character is formed. That actual tree no longer stands on the earth, but its insidious roots have penetrated and undermined the surface of our world. On every hand, we meet the ways by which the enemy seduces mankind. 
through the senses and in our thoughts. The power of beautiful music, the subtlety of sophisticated language, the prestige of celebrated names and institutions, they're skillfully mingled in the specious advertising that Satan prepares for young and old. Radio and television, newspapers, magazines and books, the stage, moving pictures, screens and billboards, they're used to induce men to evil. Here are featured the master allurements of the great tempter. Evil then becomes commonplace, and even though we do not use the devil's products, the continual repetition of his advertisements numbs our consciousness. If we can listen to the singing of some grand old hymn followed by a beer or tobacco advertisement without a feeling that something is out of place and abnormal, then our spiritual sense of balance is numbed to the point of danger. We must not lose the distinction between good and evil in what we read or hear or see. Because others have lost discrimination is no reason for us to follow. The loss of sensitivity of the spiritual ear is something that can never be regained fully. In the majority of places on earth, it is not dangerous to be known as a Christian, a condition far different from the times of the early church, when the acknowledgment of Christ was frequently fatal. Our danger is the enticement of a material and immoral age, which is more insidious and persuasive than persecution. The heart must be faithfully sentineled, or evils without will awaken evils within, and the soul will wander in darkness. The Acts of the Apostles, page 518. Men seek to justify the indulgences which their nature desires. The inventions of the evil one are always defended by his devotees. Much that is immoral is excused by the term art. Oh, yeah. Often that which is degrading in literature is defended by the word classic. But there remains a vast field of genuine enjoyment in art, music, and literary works, not necessarily religious, but that can enrich life without a person's bowing at the ancient or modern shrines of Satan. While the printing press has been a great agency for good, its power also has been perverted so that a monstrous flood of filth spreads far and wide to contaminate young and old. Books, magazines, newspapers reveal that much of today's imagination is degenerate or at least antagonistic to the ideals of the Christian. Many a soul has been ruined by the merchandise of the newsstand, the bookshelf, or the rack at the corner drugstore. For did not the tempter promise that mankind should know both good and evil? Living positively in God's world. Temptation may be avoided as we turn our hearts toward the inspiring and majestic in nature. Instead of the wild and despairing imaginations of the lost, there are rare experiences that lead toward heaven. If the glorious chiming of the bells of the singing tower at Lake Wales, Florida, do not speak to the visitor of the better land, what can? If the chasm of Grand Canyon does not thrill the heart with the Creator's power and exalted authority, what means can? He employ. If ocean, forest, and mountain do not touch our spiritual imagination, with what voice can the Creator speak to us? How fortunate we are if we can escape continual contact with the confusion of this modern age. How wonderful to quiet our sensations with the beauty and peace of plain or lake. Often we seem timid and afraid to go where we can think quietly. 
Why do we not go where from the open book of nature we can read the story of God's wisdom and love? Christ is the master builder of the universe. In the Library of Congress are hundreds of thousands of books and documents containing a portion of the knowledge that men have accumulated concerning our physical world. From the nucleus of the atom to the distant galaxy, all were brought into being by the Creator's word. Consider for a moment. It is estimated that the difference in size between the components of an atom and the span of the known universe might be expressed as a figure one, followed by at least 40 ciphers or 10 million decillions of diameters. Why do we allow our thoughts to be diverted into perverse and ignoble channels when there is such a treasury of wonder for us to investigate? Below our home extends a ravine. It's covered with shrub and forest. As the months progress, there is an exquisite change of color, like a series of magnificent paintings by Corot. First, the ethereal greens of spring, then the dark and mysterious cavern of the summer forest, later the rainbow of autumn hues, and finally, the winter's adorning of her branches with snowy lace. So the author of nature conveys to us the knowledge of his attributes in a panorama of delight. At the home of an acquaintance who grows perennials, we chanced one day upon a few plants of the Dahlberg daisy, a most beautiful star-shaped flower, upon an almost invisible stem, a tiny golden masterpiece. When we asked for a plant, it was as though we had demanded his personal treasure. Oh, no, but I will give you a few seeds, he said. Kneeling by the plant, my friend gathered tenderly the few already ripe seeds and conveyed them to me in a small parcel with the air of doing a great favor, which indeed it was. We shall never forget his respect and regard for this minute symbol of God's love of beauty. And in the small envelope was a sample of his character and beneficence. Therefore, in turning back to God and in building a character, there is no greater aid than the original plan for man in Eden of being in touch with the great harmonics of nature in all their varying aspects, the majesty of the storm or the quiet of summer evening, the magic of sunset or the early dawn, all touch the heart and speak to the restless soul of man. There is healing and restoration in the presence of God's creation, if we'll take the time to feel it. And though we may avoid the places of great temptation, where the tempests of enticement threaten the soul, there remain the usual common inducements to sin found in ordinary daily living. In the small temptations, there is also danger, for we are prone to discount the importance of seeming trifles. We must remember that the promises in the book of Revelation are to overcomers. The church in seven ages of prophetic time has depended for its membership upon the faithful who have overcome. A great company stand upon the golden sea of glass in the songs of the in the day of victory. Palm branches wave, trumpets blow, and the songs of the immortal rise and swell to heights sublime. This is to celebrate the gathering of the overcomers of all the ages, from Adam and Mother Eve to the last name inscribed within the book of life. Overcoming is a positive action. The great host outside the holy city in the final day of God's judgment do not all stand there because in life they were active in opposition. Countless numbers simply drifted into this tragic state and made no effort to resist evil in their lives. 
In that vast throng there will be many who are former believers in the faith, but who finally refuse the pleading of the Holy Spirit. And many will be there who had good intentions, but they did not overcome. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you that we have this wonderful chapter to consider. Help us, Lord, to be desirous of overcoming. We pray for thy Holy Spirit to indwell us today and to give us this overcoming experience. Thank you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. All right, my brother and sister, I'll see you in the morning on a different study. Have a wonderful day.